And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hello and welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am the host of this here shindig, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Here on this show, it's all about Daredevil. Marvel Comics Man Without Fear, Netflix Superstar, Lawyer by Day, Superhero by Night. But in addition to that, I also like to talk sometimes about his allies or his enemies. They're part of him, they're part of his world. And I give that disclosure this week because we begin the first of a four-part series. We're going to be looking at one of the most well-regarded Spider-Man stories ever, the death of Gene DeWolf. And while Daredevil plays a major part in that, he is not the main focus. Having said that, I really feel this is a story that feels like a Daredevil story starring Spider-Man. And I want to give a special thanks to Mr. Michael Bailey. He of views from the long box from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Bailey's Batman podcast, and you know, I could spend a whole episode listing the shows he's on. But he was the inspiration for this episode. He was taking some snapshots of the covers, and it really inspired me to take a look at this. So I pulled out my issues, which were bought from Michael Bailey. So these next four episodes are dedicated to Mr. Bailey. May you podcast into the next millennium and beyond. Now, as mentioned, it is a darker Spider-Man story and a pretty good Daredevil team-up as well, but I think for me the main reason I wanted to cover this and really the reason it really got jumped up in the schedule was not only was I switching moods a bit, one of the luxuries of not tying yourself to a linear timeline as far as indexing shows, but secondly, it says a lot about Spider-Man and it says a lot about Daredevil and how these characters are alike as well as different. And let me comment just a moment on the idea of a darker Spider-Man tale, because there are those who believe somewhat correctly that Spider-Man has no place in a darker tale. A lot of that stems back to Todd McFarlane's run on the objectiveless Spider-Man title. That initial Torment storyline has taken a lot of flack for being a dark Spider-Man tale, and you know what? I've given a lot of flack for being a dark Spider-Man tale. But I hear you say, Dave, what's going on with that? How can you say that Spider-Man is not necessarily prone to a darker tale and turn around and cover a darker Spider-Man tale? And to do so on a Daredevil podcast, no less. Well, that's kind of getting to what I want to say about this storyline. The death of Gene DeWolf deals with a different type of darkness, a real-world darkness. We're dealing with a murderer, as we're going to see. We're going to deal with muggers, the failings of the legal system. The themes are dark, and they're pulled from real-world elements. A lot of what we're going to be seeing over the next few weeks, we still hear in the news today. Things like the subjects we see in this story happen. They happen in real world. They happen to those that are out there serving the community, such as EMTs, policemen, firemen. They appear on the headlines of our newspapers. And as such, since you have a street-level hero in terms of Daredevil and a semi-street-level hero in terms of Spider-Man, or at least Spidey is slumming it for this storyline in the street-level pantheon, you're putting these characters in a position to experience these real-world ramifications, these events. Now juxtapose that against McFarlane's voodoo, magic, so on and so forth, and it's a bit trickier to sell me on that kind of Spider-Man tale. Spawn? Okay, you've got me. That matches. Batman? You can kind of play with that. You can somewhat sell me on Daredevil. Daredevil, thanks to some lack of focus in his early days, 
does have that ubiquitous nature you can tell all kinds of stories with him. Spider-Man is a straightforward superhero, and I just can't buy that kind of darkness. This storyline, though, the idea of loss of faith in the legal system, being pushed to the edge, those resonate, and we've seen that played with in superhero tales before. Look at Superman in our worlds at war. It's all about the hero overcoming these odds, overcoming this darkness, and retaining their heroic nature. So I guess the lesson on dark Spider-Man tales is, if you're going to do it, do it right. Make it organic. Make it real. And to that end, since I am covering that Spider-Man tale, and it does lean more Spidey than Daredevil, it really does come down to comparing and contrasting these characters in the world of a street-level hero. So while the focus is a bit Spidey-oriented, the idea of what does Daredevil take home at night? What is resting on his shoulders when he lays his head down on his pillow? And that became an incredibly irresistible idea to discuss. So when it came time to make the decision as far as covering this, I realized it's just too much discussion generated. I cannot look away. It has to be brought to the forefront, and you've got to follow your muse. So yes, while the focus will be a bit Spidey-oriented, the heart of the episodes is Daredevil, and sort of how he fits into the world of other heroes, and how that world affects him as well as somebody like Spider-Man. Now, since I've moved to Two True Freaks, I wanted to make some quick tweaks to the show and the way it ran. So instead of going to a break, from now on, I'm just going to jump right in. I'm not going to have a whole lot of preamble. I'll talk a little bit at the end about pertinent things. But for the most part, it's all about a man on a mission, as somebody said in an iTunes review. So I'm going to jump right in because I am extremely excited about this comic. To give a bit of background on where we are in 1985, which just blew my mind that it is now 30 years ago and I have a frame of reference for it, I feel like this was a really fertile time for Spider-Man. Not the time that's notated for the renaissance that would come between David Michelini and Todd McFarlane, but I think there's a lot of validity to this era. I think it's very, very readable, very, very gripping, and a lot of good stories came out of it. Where we're entering the story is after the black costume was discovered to be a symbiote. Spider-Man would alternate between his traditional red and blue garb and a cloth version of the black costume. That's going to become important for the mood because we are leaning on a black costume, and as I'm going to comment probably several times, it fits this story very, very well. We also had Spider-Man really coming into young adulthood, which is going to be a big piece of my conversation as well. He had just ended a relationship with the Black Cat, which, if we'll put it nicely, was complicated. One of Spider-Man's longtime allies, Jean DeWolf, made her first appearance in Marvel Team-Up number 48. She was a brass, no-nonsense police captain with a penchant for 1930s clothes, and since that debut in 1976, Jean DeWolf had become a regular fixture in the pantheon of Spider-Man's supporting cast. That is, until we get to this week's issue. Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 107, the second ongoing title for Spider-Man, an issue dropping with an October 1985 cover date. The cover by Rich Buckler is phenomenal, and I'm kind of kicking myself for not taking this issue along to be signed when I went to Eternal Con, since it's already signed by Peter David. And you know, when awesomeness comes up and kicks you in the face, you know, and I have a big boot print on my face. Sitting on top of the individualized logo for the book and the longer title... Before it got homogenized with the rest of the line to do the normal downward swoop to match up with Amazing Spider-Man, we have the words all new, all daring, which does lend quite a bit of excitement to this issue. I loved the design from this time. The icon box in the upper left-hand corner has a split design. One half is Peter Parker, the other half is the black costume Spider-Man. I always loved the fact that they added Peter Parker to the title. It gave it an identity, it gave it a direction. This isn't just Spider-Man, this is Peter Parker and his world. And what works for this cover is it is stupid simple. Spider-Man in his black costume is simply swinging at the reader. The sky in the background is purple, much like the sun has just set, including a gradient pattern. 
And it really does give it a vibrant idea. The black cast against that purple. We also have Spider-Man thinking, someone has killed a woman who meant a lot to me. All right, mister, you got her. And now I'm getting you. In this issue, Spidey cuts loose. I don't know how anybody could resist this cover. It's generic, but that's in no way, shape, or form a bad thing. I mean, essentially, it's a great Spider-Man pinup with thought balloons added. I would love to see the original art for this cover. But it definitely has the feel of a new first issue, especially by adding the all-new All-Darren. And you feel like you could just jump right in, but you would be coaxed into a false sense of calm. The story inside is entitled The Death of Gene DeWolf Part 1, Original Sin. Written by Peter David, one of my favorite writers. Penciled by Rich Buckler. Inked by Brett Breeding. Colored by Bob Sharon. And lettered by Phil Felix. It is reprinted multiple times over in the Death of Gene DeWolf trade paperback, which is available on Amazon.com. Feel free to use the Two True Freaks link. You can shop just as you normally would, but the freaks get a cut of that money, and it helps keep the lights on. And before we dive into the story, I'm just going to let you know I'm not going to do formal synopses any longer. When listening to it uh, during editing, I realized it's kind of one step forward, one step back. So instead, I'm going to go scene by scene through the book, rather than repeat myself. And I think it's going to move a little bit smoother. So let's jump into Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, number 107. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And Hell followed with him. The issue begins with Jean DeWolf remembering her life. From a little girl, up through the ranks of the police department, all the way to captain, all under the watchful eye of her stepfather who never smiled. But the reason for this flashback is that Jean DeWolf has just been found dead in her apartment. Yeah, kind of a kick in the face to start us off. The sweet sentimental journey here, it allows new readers who may not have known who Jean was to jump in feet first. It allows them to also get a connection with that character, who she was, who she could have been, and that's the tragic part. And then we get gutted by finding her shot to death in her own bed. Not in a blaze of glory, no heroic action, dead in her bed. And that idea that her stepfather didn't smile... It was sort of a motivation for her, because she knew he wanted her to be the first female police commissioner. That was the goal. So he was always motivating her, and that always pushed her in the direction and allowed her to focus. That's some potent stuff. That also ends up being a double-edged sword. It's a kick to the emotional jaw, because even as she is dying, I mean, her life is literally flashing before her eyes, she still has that goal of being the first female police commissioner, something we know she is never going to achieve. And this is cast against the policeman coming into her apartment and finding her body. Now, this is semi-graphic, I will be honest. Especially for a code-approved book, especially for a Spider-Man tale. We have Jean DeWolf staring at us. She stares at the reader. And we don't see a lot of uh, blood, things of that nature. But the descriptions of the stench and bring people in with a strong stomach pretty much sells the scene. This is a nasty death. We're going to find out later that she was almost shot in half from a shotgun. That's harsh. I don't care who you are. Now, even though this is very much a shock, it's not shock for shock value. It sells what we need to see. Because this is going to be the emotional underpinning that's going to thrust the story forward for both Spider-Man and Daredevil. It allows us to empathize with Spider-Man and what he's going to go through through the journey we're about to see. So we have no excessive gore, but the right elements are there. And we also get that moment to know the deceased. That's potent. That's expert writing. It does allow you to feel for this character. 
even if you don't know her, as I didn't really when I started reading the issue. I do want to speak to something. There is an erroneous idea that Peter David, who was working in marketing at Marvel and was just now transitioning to writer, so this is before he became the Peter David, but there's a perception that he came on the book with an eye to kill Gene DeWolf, which would make this shock for shock value. And that is not a correct perception. It's been clarified by Peter David as well as editor Jim Owsley. Peter David actually had ideas for stories that would have Gene DeWolf in them. And I could see him liking the Gene DeWolf character. That's right up his alley. But Owsley, who wanted to take this book in a new direction as he was taking it over, wanted a feel like the show Hill Street Blues, which was a gritty cop drama in the 80s. So he made the request that Peter David kill Gene DeWolf to give it a darker edge, more of a police procedural than a superhero tale. And I think, just to say this up front, that was achieved. This story feels different from Spider-Man stories of the past and paved the way for things like Craven's Last Hunt and really organic dark stories, but it also led the path to McFarlane's run. Catch-22, I guess. But for me, the thing that stood out about this scene was Jean talking about her mother and the relationship she had with the police. As it shows, Jean's father, her biological father, was also a police officer, which led her mother to divorce him. Because as we see, she was always waiting by the phone, waiting for that inevitable, tragic call. However, Jean's mother turned around and married another police officer. So once again, by the phone, waiting for the call. And the fact that Jean became a police officer, it's implied that, of course, her mother is waiting by that phone. And now, by allowing us to see that memory, we, the reader, are burdened with the idea, even if we don't see it, that Jean's mom is going to get that dreaded call. Peter David, if your goal was to shoot an arrow through my heart... Bullseye! So from that opening, we move to Manhattan, where we find our hero, Peter Parker, taking pictures of the people of New York. And what is Peter Parker taking pictures of, you might ask? A hot blonde. And I believe that could be applied literally. Even though she is attractive, she is dressed in a skimpy outfit, which it is December, or at least late November at this stage. And I don't think Peter is in a place to critique that outfit. I'm sure he likes it, but at the same time, Peter's wearing a members-only jacket. That's right, a members-only jacket like he's Ryan Gosling in Drive. So what's weirder, beachwear on a 40-degree day or a Ryan Gosling wannabe? Before there was even a Ryan Gosling. You tell me. So as he's taking pictures, Peter spots one of Aunt May's boarders, Mr. Popchick, Mr. Ernie Popchick. And Mr. Popchick is taking money from the ATM. Peter warns him not to flash it around because you are in, you know, Manhattan. And not heeding the warning, Mr. Popchick gets mugged. And I always liked the idea of Aunt May boarding out some of the rooms in her house. Not only did it give her something to do in the story, it also gave kind of fertile ground for subplots. You always have a whole plethora of potential victims in the boarding house, such as Nathan, Aunt May's would-be fiancé, or of course, Mr. Popchick. However, this mugging is really hard to read. I don't mean that it's a challenge to read, I mean it is a struggle because it's so brutal. Mr. Popchick is taking some hard blows, and there's a point where he's actually begging the muggers to just take the money, don't hurt him anymore. It's harsh, and that certainly galvanizes us, if the opening didn't, into the tone of this book and where the direction is that it's going to take. I mean, he takes blows to the chest and the back of the head, it's harsh. Now, Peter's spider sense goes off, so he realizes what's happening and switches to Spider-Man, and of course goes after the muggers. And I think Buckler, in his art, nails Peter's rage. I think there's a lot of emotions there. Rage, shock, even maybe some guilt, because he did let Mr. Popchick just wander off after the warning, and some of this is on him. That's important to note, as it's going to be a theme as we go through the story. And one detail I want to point out is that Peter's decency 
is on display here, he stops to check on Mr. Popchick before going after the muggers. Please make an earmark of that. We're going to talk more about this in the next couple of weeks, especially next week, as we get deeper into this story. As we go into Peter switching to Spider-Man, we get a great shirt rip. Not something you necessarily attribute to Spider-Man, more Superman, but this still works perfectly. The weird thing about the Spider-Man costume at this time was that it was pretty much arbitrary which costume he was going to wear. Sometimes it would be black, sometimes red and blue. Sometimes he would alternate between issues. The reason is Marvel never fully committed to the black costume and never quite knew what to do with it after the symbiote was removed. They knew people liked it, but they also knew licensing had to depend on the red and blue, so kind of a weird conflict. For me, the black costume always felt like a grown-up Spider-Man costume, an evolution of the character, if you will. I know that's not exactly accurate, but that's how I perceived it as a kid, and those kinds of perceptions do tend to taint your adult views. The plus side of the black costume is Spider-Man can look incredibly imposing, and Buckler really brings that to the table as he's bearing down on these muggers, and maybe Little Dave had something there. And while there's the familiar Spider-Man quips, there's a more serious undertone to what he's doing. This is a driven Spider-Man. This is somebody who's hurt somebody he knows. This could have also been Aunt May. And I think that idea is rattling around in the back of Peter's skull. And it kind of makes Spider-Man seem a little off-center, which will be key. It's kind of a nice broth to the soup that Peter David's about to build. And that broth kind of hits a boil when Spider-Man turns in the muggers to some police officers who inform him of Jean's death. This is a respected ally and somebody that Spider-Man really did care for. And they were just brutally killed, and again, in her own bed. No blaze of glory, no heroic death, sleeping in her bed. So when he finds out, his astonishment rang true to me. Having gotten that call of a loved one passing on, I think we all do the same thing. There's a moment of shock, and there are words that come out of your mouth that don't really make sense, even though you don't realize it at the time. Those words are, I just saw her the other day. And I'm reminded of a great George Carlin bit where he's making light of that. Now, speaking of dead people, there are things we say when someone dies. Most of us say, a lot of us do. Things we say that no one ever questions. They just kind of go unexamined. Give you a couple examples. Uh, after someone dies, the following conversation is bound to take place probably more than once. Two guys meet on the street. Hey, did you hear? Phil Davis died. Phil Davis? I just saw him yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't help. <laughs> he died anyway. <laughs> Apparently, the simple act of your seeing him did not slow his cancer down. And while that's funny, it's still a very real knee-jerk reaction because there's no great way to respond to the news of a death, even if you knew it was coming. Death is and will remain a very hard concept for the human mind to wrap themselves around. The antithesis of life, life as we know it, life that is everything to us. And I think one of the best, most poignant statements on this was when a high school chum died, and I was speaking with a friend who just looked over me and said, yesterday he saw the sunrise, now he's gone. And that always hit me as profound. Yesterday, Jean DeWolf saw the sunrise, now she is gone. So with that, let's leave Spidey to kind of cope with that for a moment. We jump to a scene of a very creepy man going to a confessional. Pin that to the wall for next week. I don't have much to say on it. But from there, we go to the Daily Bugle, where J. Jonah Jameson and Robbie Robertson are hearing the news and kind of working through their feelings and perceptions of it as well. And I'm really proud of the conversation that occurs. It's a really great side of J. Jonah Jameson, who 
for the most part, ends up being relegated to comic relief, even though there's a lot there to work with. And this is one of the first instances of Peter David nailing J. Jonah Jameson on a whole new level. And that's something he would become known for post-Civil War, as Jameson reacted to finding out that Spider-Man was indeed Peter Parker. It's a really great scene, I certainly recommend checking that out. But here, Jameson is grumbling about the shooting, and Robbie points out that Jameson never liked Gene DeWolf. To which Jameson says that doesn't mean she deserves to die. Which of course leads to the philosophical question, who does? This is a very adult conversation, really. And Peter David has never shied away from controversial subjects. Especially in his Incredible Hulk run. You had Betty Banner considering an abortion. Jim Wilson dying of AIDS. And an incredibly profound issue about the death penalty featuring Doc Sampson working with a patient known as Crazy Eight. And these are two characters that would have this conversation both in their personality as well as their chosen profession. I've always liked the relationship between Jameson and Robbie Robertson. I'm a big Robbie Robertson fan because I've always felt he keeps Jameson honest. He's one of the few people that Jameson somewhat respects, and that respect allows Robbie latitude to call J. Jonah Jameson out on some bullshit. So Jameson is reflecting on the question and posits maybe Hitler deserved to die, assassins, cop killers, and then Robbie flips the script by saying, does Spider-Man deserve to die? And Jameson has to admit that even though he doesn't like Spider-Man, he's not one of the above. He's not a Nazi or a killer, so he doesn't deserve to die. Now, while I like this scene, I like the conversation, I have to point out, I really have to point out that Jameson has launched several attempts to actually kill Spider-Man. Where did the scorpion come from? Weren't they called Spider Slayers, and wasn't Jameson responsible for them? I'm just saying. And while this is an adult conversation and somewhat innocuous overall, it still plays with some of the themes wandering around through this story. The undercurrents of judgment, who is fit to judge, and that's a very important one, as well as the idea of emotional attachment and detachment. When you're in the news, or firefighter, or a cop, something along those lines where you do deal with tragedy on a regular basis, you have to have a certain level of detachment. Reporters, when done correctly, are supposed to process the information without any emotional involvement. That's the main goal of objective journalism. So this conversation, it really isn't innocuous. It kind of underlines the themes that are coming and sets the reader on a perceptive path, putting them on the table and allowing the reader to chew on it and then continuing the story where these elements come in and out of play. Now, during the discussion, we get an interruption by a character called Reverend Jackson Tolliver. And this is a priest who has arrived here in New York to start a ministry and wants the Daily Bugle to put some publicity on it. This is an interaction that gets very awkward very fast. Jonah recognizes the name and asks Tolliver if he was involved with some of the Atlanta killings a few years ago. And this may seem like a throwaway line, but it is not. Not by a long shot. It's referencing a very real world event. From 1979 to 1981, Atlanta saw a series of killings. 28 African Americans, mostly children, were killed. 22 of them were children, to be exact, ranging from 7 to 16, along with 6 adults. This was a media hotbed in the 80s because Atlanta built up a task force and a tip line, but the media discovered that they weren't writing down or following up on every tip, which of course led to allegations of racism. So as you might imagine, this is an emotional subject for Tolliver, who would have been presiding in Atlanta at that time, at least we presume, and as we'll find out, was involved with the media backlash. So Tolliver blasts back, why does a white man care about the death of African-American kids? Things get a little tense there, but Tolliver admits, yes, yes, I've seen some shit. I've got a chip on my shoulder. Can you blame me? And I cannot. 
it's very human to feel that way, especially with a tragedy that spanned three years and took the lives of 28 people. Well, suddenly we're dealing with a different level, aren't we? Bringing that real-world perspective in takes this story from just a simple cops and robbers to relevant to the events of that time. And that creates this subtle feeling of paranoia that all of this could happen, even if Spider-Man is involved. This tone, uh, the grit on these pages, is why I feel this is a good Daredevil story, or at least a Daredevil template, if you will. But it's put on Spider-Man. To give you a bit of a perspective of where Daredevil was at this time, book-wise, it's right in between the end of Miller's run proper and Born Again. A very odd time. Many feel that it was a little lost. I think there was a lot of gold in that time. Just hit or miss more than normal. So now we've got a really firm canvas to paint the story on. And from there, Spider-Man heads to the police precinct to volunteer his services in the search for Gene DeWolf's killer. But the head detective, Sergeant Stan Carter, has just left. So Spider-Man chases after him and hops on top of Stan's car and slips into it, and the two begin to compare notes. First of all, there's a cop at the precinct that directs Spider-Man that Stan just left, and he casually nonchalantly gives directions even as Spider-Man pops his head into a window on a upper floor. I would probably fill my shorts, but that's me. Also, as Spider-Man lands on Stan's car and pokes his head in the passenger side window, Stan's pretty nonchalant. As for me... So as we're going through the discussion, Stan points out that really there are no leads. There's no motive. Everybody is a suspect at this stage, even himself and Spider-Man. And Stan makes a point of mentioning that he's worried less about obvious nuts, such as a man in a spider costume, for example, and more about the unobvious ones. And Stan is even nice enough to share his hot chocolate with Spider-Man, even though most of the NYPD has a pretty hostile attitude toward the wall crawler. This is an oddly normal conversation, almost police procedural. You could see this on NYPD Blue, Hill Street Blues, any number of cop shows. Just two guys sharing the particulars of a case. The main takeaway is that Jean DeWolf was actually well-liked within the ranks of the police, and she in turn liked Spider-Man a lot, which Spider-Man didn't know. And that's another move that smacks of reality. How much do we know about a person? How much do we find out after they're gone? So far, Peter David's hitting the right spots emotionally, and as well as giving us a broader canvas and a different perspective, if you will. We're fully, completely aware that this is not a traditional Spider-Man tale. And I feel pretty immersed at this stage in it being a cop drama with Spider-Man along for the ride. But I hear you asking it. Dave, this is Dave's Daredevil podcast, not Dave's Spider-Man podcast. Where is the man without fear? And I'm really, really glad that you asked that. Because we jump to a scene with Daredevil making his morning commute to court by swinging across the city and latching onto a traffic helicopter. There's not much to this scene with Daredevil. It's a good entrance for him. Looks good. It's dynamic. A great sequence of shots. I mean, we get a good profile, a good flip, a close-up of the billy club, and a dynamic swing. Visually, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's pretty much pure Daredevil. And Buckler really does give us some great acrobatic shots using flagpoles. It's an early morning scene, so the colors take it to the next level. It really is a gorgeous shot. And for the most part, it could serve as a decent primer for those that don't know Daredevil as it kind of gives you the overview of his powers, his whole shindig. And where is Matt going this fine morning? Well, to court, of course. And guess who he's defending? 
That's right, Mr. Popchick's Muggers, which sounds like a children's movie, but he's representing them within the arraignment, and Peter Parker, Aunt May, and Ernie Popchick himself are in attendance. And as we know, Matt is a competent lawyer, so he gets his clients released on their own recognizance. Basically, he's pleading for the assumption of innocence. He's not trying to play it like he's representing apostles, just that these people have a first offense and that's it so far. But with the idea that the criminals are released and that they're walking around, Peter gets ticked and makes a big fat faux pas. He barges up to Matt and asks Matt how he can look at himself in the mirror this morning. Ooh, that is awkward. The main thing with this, though, is as Peter is confronting Matt, Matt recognizes the heartbeat as that of Spider-Man. And Matt puts together that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So that's going to get really, really awkward. You also have a nice dichotomy between these characters in their civilian guise. Daredevil and Spider-Man exist outside the law. They just approach differently. Matt is a part of the system. Peter remains outside of it, so they have different views on how criminals should be treated. Matt has faith in the legal system being a part of it. He believes it will do the right thing in the right way, not all of the time, because he is a somewhat realistic person, but overall. Peter, on the other hand, has watched the system continuously fail, including this particular example. Criminals use a revolving door to Spider-Man. How many times has he faced the Vulture who was in prison? How many times has he faced Sandman? And that's Peter in and out of the costume as well. Daredevil has a slightly more complex view, even though he does believe in the system. As a crime fighter and a lawyer, he's both halves of the law. He's basically a law and order McDLT. Peter catches them, delivers them, and then goes off on his merry way and then deals with the results later when they inevitably escape. We don't see very many scenes of Spider-Man testifying in court. Matt, on the other hand, does catch the criminals and then watches them process through the system. Again, both sides of the law and order perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that Matt doesn't share some of Peter's skepticism. He just knows that there's always a way around some of the flaws in the system. Matt also possesses a certain detachment to these proceedings, something that he shares with Jameson and Robbie Robertson. In order to process and do their jobs, there has to be a certain distance between the topic and the viewer. Otherwise, it would be incredibly easy to be consumed by such a system when it does fail. Even with that detachment, though, Matt can be bothered, especially with scenarios like today. After everything is settled, Matt goes back into the judge's chambers to talk with Judge Rosenthal, who was the presiding judge and a mentor to Matt to some extent. And Matt talks about his personal detachment, and it's not complete. He still has a conscience, and sometimes that comes screaming through, especially when he gets some muggers off to walk the streets once again, and Rosenthal basically tells Matt to man up. He suggests Matt be a public defender. It'll give him guts. And this really isn't just a throwaway joke, because Matt's the man without fear, earn some guts. It's an emotional hook, and it's one that's going to be made very, very clear by the end of this issue and the beginning of next week's. Matt mentions his belief, which is a belief instilled by Horace when Matt was in law school, that everyone deserves the best efforts of a lawyer. And again, that brings back that professional detachment we're talking about. But I also think it's more a sign of how Matt works. There's a balance to Matt that doesn't really appear on a lot of other superheroes. And it's that balance that really defines Daredevil quite a bit. It underpins that idealism I talk about a lot. No matter how bad you are, you deserve a fair trial. The system will sort out the bad eggs. And again, Matt doesn't completely believe the system is without flaw. He just believes that in its more perfect form, it will do exactly what it sets out to do, punish the wicked and protect the innocent. Almost a childlike quality if Matt didn't realize the flaws were there. 
So a lot of that balance that we see in Daredevil, the concept, the approach to the superheroing, comes from Horace and his mentorship when Matt was in law school. Judge Rosenthal was a big influence on him, clearly, and really helped define some of the main elements of Matt and Daredevil and that duality. So Rosenthal slips away into the bathroom, and this gives Matt a chance to check out the person he has sensed in the judge's study. So someone is lurking around there, and when Matt first senses the man, he notes an aura-like decaying vermin. It just conveys the idea of sickness and death. And this is when Sin Eater, the man that's looking around, introduces himself. And he's wearing this green ski mask, the color of sickness, which just underpins the imagery. Other than that, it's kind of a light purple shirt, regular pants, and a big-ass shotgun. And clearly, Sin Eater doesn't like lawyers because he fires a shot from the shotgun, which Matt is able to dodge. Judge Rosenthal, however, isn't so lucky as he returns to the room and the Sin Eater turns to blast him. And now Judge Rosenthal, who was just talking about Matt should be gaining some guts, who's talked about Matt being a public defender, giving his best effort. This guy drops to his knees and starts begging right out of the gate. Now, everybody has a breaking point, so I'm not judging Rosenthal. We all have a point where we're going to drop our normal mental state and snap, either out of fear, out of anger, out of stress. There is a threshold for everybody. And here we have Matt kind of shocked at this because he's never seen Judge Rosenthal's threshold. And he's also thrown off from the gun blast, so his senses are a little bit crazy. And this causes him to hesitate for just a moment too long. And much like Peter failed Gene and the court failed Pop Chick, we see Daredevil fail Rosenthal as the shotgun blasts right at the judge. And the ending is almost ambiguous. I mean, you still have that idea that it could miss, he could duck, but we're at close range. Let's be honest. Rosenthal is toast. It's not a dignified death, and Matt had to see that. It's shades of Jack Murdoch, really. An authority figure getting shot down, and that has to snap something in Matt, professional detachment or not. We're going to find out what his response is next week. As for this week, let's talk about the final verdict for Spectacular Spider-Man number 107. This is an opening salvo that grabs the reader and quickly lays strong roots into fertile ground for a different kind of Spider-Man tale. Is it a decompressed story? Yes. But it's playing with heavier themes that do need some space to open up and air out. At the time, it was it was tones that you wouldn't see in mainstream comics. It's very much a character piece that utilizes that room to breathe and do its work. It's not decompressed in the terms of being written for the trade. And Peter David very intelligently selects the aftermath of the story's title, The Death of Gene DeWolf, to begin his tale. And suddenly we have this huge, looming character story space to play with, and Peter David lays a lot in this first installment. We have reactions to death, the idea of loss of faith being pushed closer to an edge. And as this plays out, we're going to see a lot of things come from these characters. We have Spider-Man here who is clearly personally affected by Gene DeWolf's death, Mr. Popchick, who is going to be affected by the mugging and the idea that the system failed him. And of course, we have Daredevil, who is working with a flawed system, and he's going to be dealing with his failure here and how that resonates. And then we have the Sin Eater. Who is he? What does he want? That's going to be what we're going to be exploring over the next few weeks. All of these characters have a root in a similarity, as we're going to see. They're all tied together by the events of this issue. And we're going to see this very interesting dichotomy, primarily between Daredevil, Spider-Man, and the Sin Eater, and the potential for all three to go, really, either way, good or evil. Yes, I'll admit this is primarily a setup issue, but it succeeds in setting it up and intriguing the reader. 
The opening page takes you gently by the hand and leads you right into a crime scene. And Buckler's art really sells the weight and seriousness of the situations in the comic, and it's great to look at. It's gritty and sharp on the same token. It's a very intense issue and makes you immediately want to open up the next issue, which we're going to do next week. For now, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and then I will be back right after this. There's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe American hero. G.I. Joe is there. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro fighting to save the day. He never gives up. He's always there. Fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe American hero. G.I. Joe is there. Attention, Joes. This is General Hawk. I have an important mission for you. I need you to listen to G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. It's a monthly podcast where Aaron Moss, Codename Head, and two other Joes, Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, will be reporting on the comic book G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Previously published by Marvel, currently being published by IDW Comics. We'll also cover the special missions, the yearbooks, order battles, etc. To hear their message, report to G.I. Joe.com. HeadSpeaks.com or iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can get further information at Facebook, Google Plus, and Twitter. All under G.I. Joe, a real American headcast. Dismissed. Now we know! And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, is a proud member of the headcast family. The world never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. Joe. Alright, I am back, and that is the end of our second week here at Two True Freaks. And I hope you're liking the new style so far. Again, it is a little bit more efficient, takes us through the issue more directly. It's almost like Dave's Daredevil Podcast 2.0. And to that end, um, with the change in tone, I wanted to bring up some really great coverage. As you can see, we've jumped well ahead of some of the classic Daredevil, and that will be coming back here and there for shorter stints. But from here, what we're going to be doing at the end of this series is jumping back into the Frank Miller material. Not quite where we left off. I'm going to be covering a little bit of Electra Assassin, but that will take us pretty much to episode 100. But that's it for me this week. I am done. I'm going to take a siesta, if you will. I'm feeling it's nap time. Thank you once again for joining me in some Daredevil action. I'll be back, of course, in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. 
If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.